0: Hello and welcome to
1: Peace of No Mind Peace, Peace of No, of no mind. Of mind Peace of No of mind. mind Peace of No Peace Mind Peace of No Mind My name is Raymond Tanner and you've joined us at Peace of No Mind. If you like today's show, hit us up on Twitter at Peace of No Mind and at Peace of No Mind Show on Instagram. You know what, love it if you like, share and subscribe this episode. Peace of No Mind. I feel so privileged to have the man like... The whole man, the whole man in person. You got a whole, whole thing. man. You are Elms here, the man. Whole man. You know. Hi. Thank you, thank you for coming on today. I know you're a busy man yeah. at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. The, pre-
1: the pleasure is mine. We can both keep saying thank you. I wouldn't mind that. Do you want to say thank you one more time? Yeah, thank you. There thank we you. go. The thank you all. Infinitely to the power of and to the end. <laughs> to power. the F degree, the nth bro. Every degree. Yeah. So what's what's happening at the moment, because I know you're a busy guy, like what is it that's taking a majority of your time? Um, at the moment I'm just
0: working on uh, the sixth draft of my next play called Three Sisters. It's going to be on at the National Theatre in December. So just rewriting. I think I finished the first act today, and there are four acts. So uh, yeah, it, it's good. I think I'm on schedule.
1: Mad, Roughly. because with a lot of people, they don't know, in, in terms of like the drafting process, it's not always that like you write something and it's boom, that's the end of, that that's the finalized version. Yeah. It's like, how many processes did you find that you'd go through before you'd be happy with a piece of work? When does it usually end?
0: Um, I work alone in collaboration with dramaturgs and I'm writing people who edit the text, either for, for television or for film or for theater or whatever. So it's usually when we mutually agree on a vision They have different things, they speak on behalf of the production company I speak as an artist and I'm trying to understand what they want the text to do and where that meets with what I, w- I want the text to do. And, uh, you know, how long is a piece of string? Sometimes we get there <laughs> immediately. Sometimes, as in the case of Barbershop, there were 14 drafts of the play before we went to the stage. 14.
1: So. And see, that, that is so. the part which I probably failed to introduce. Like, we're not only here with Inua elements but we're here with the writer of Barbershop Chronicles. And you are saying that there was 14 drafts before it actually became that finalised piece?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh. it's been changed since. So what you see on stage is probably draft 15, actually. (laughs) So keep on tweaking it.
1: You keep tweaking it and making sure that it's perfect before it ends. As much as possible, yeah. Because what's weird is obviously now it's on at the Roundhouse. It's six weeks long. So guys, if you haven't seen Barbershop Chronicles, I highly, highly, highly urge you guys to go and see that. When I saw it first, it was at the National. And then I saw it, I actually saw it three times. And it was one of those things, like, I didn't actively... So, okay, okay, that sounds wrong. I actively wanted to see it three times. Yeah. But when I first saw it, I think the biggest thing to me was just being and seeing black males... On stage, I've never seen so many black males on stage. Full stop. Mm. And I was slowly being reintroduced to theatre, and you know it, it, there were so many parts of it to me as like a whole representative piece mm. where you're touching on parts of like identity. And to me, I was like just not expecting. I wasn't ready. Like Kevin Hart would say, I just wasn't ready at <laughs> yeah. all. Bro. So I went there, sat down, and I was like, this is mental. And I think at the time they were doing like £10 tickets as well. Mm. Like, I don't know if they're still doing that now. Now, if there's any yeah. little, little plugs, no, <laughs> like, cool. I
0: don't think there are no, no. plugs unless you know who in you are. <laughs> Sorry. So.
1: <laughs> Ended up like with that joy that I experienced, I just wanted to drag another set of people, be like, come to this and mm. see what I saw and let me know if this is legitimate and I feel like everyone had similar reactions. Yeah. So that was how I ended up seeing it like three times in the space of like maybe a month or so. But I, I haven't seen it yet at the roundhouse. And would you say some of it's changed or any parts of Definitely
0: that? it's 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 in the round. The space is bigger. The actors have to they have to give more of themselves and loom more into the space. But the energy, the spirit of it is persistent. It stays here and it's spotless and it's great
1: yeah and i said the spirit is persistent did you not catch that one I said, the, that is but that to me is the soul of it yeah. all right and yeah yeah you have to make sure that doesn't get lost in transitions right yeah and i'll go into a little bit i want to go into barbershop a little bit later but because you're on peace of no mind because yeah. you're on peace of no mind i ask all the guests who come on what is a peace of mind to you and how is it best achieved oh boy
0: i think i wish i knew i knew i wish i knew this answer and honest the truth is i don't right now if i'm honest for me it's very fleeting It's very brief it comes when i finished writing a poem for like and it lasts for maybe four or five minutes and then it goes and then i begin writing something else or or I begin worrying about something else. I worry a lot. If worrying was an Olympic sport, I wouldn't even turn up because I'm worrying. You know, it's, it's crazy. And I try, I try not to, but I have an overactive imagination, and I have a restless voice. And as soon as there's calm, there's quiet, another voice in me starts speaking, and it keeps, and it starts trying to find a form for its concerns and that becomes another poem or another play or a line in something that doesn't exist yet um i think peace of mind is figuring out how to quiet my overactive um creative impulses and i don't know yet how to do that or what can substitute for that attempt to always fill any voids that i find coming and the problem is when i find a void coming i try to fill it with something beautiful and that becomes plays it becomes poetry um it becomes words images blah 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 but i don't know maybe sometimes i should just let that void emanate and then that would become peace of mind so i haven't figured it out yet it okay. only comes after a poem and then five minutes go bang something but then
1: else. what you just said is that it comes after a poem and then creativity yeah. sparks after that yeah right? mad but that is a super profound way of like geez. I think that might actually be one of the best terminologies I've heard for peace of mind Mm. because it was very very direct to your experience like yeah yeah. so again lovely thank you for coming on I just wanted to know a little bit about some of your like earlier stages because where were you born and a little bit about your upbringing Mm. because I feel that that helps frame and understand the context for which a lot of your plays have been created and where some of your just creativity in general sparks from. Yeah,
0: I I was born in Nigeria in 1984. Where in Nigeria? In Joss. Okay. Sort of in the north, considered part of the north. Geographically, sort of like slap bang in the middle of the country, those considered parts of the north. And I was born in a city which the British colonizers loved and they really fought for just to try to beautify it. But in recent times, it's been overrun by Boko Haram. My father was a Muslim when he married my mother who was a Christian, and there was this conflict over a Muslim man marrying a Christian, and all of that really dominated much of my childhood in the sense that I used to go to the mosque as often as I went to the church when I was oh, a kid, wow. whereas my sisters only went to the church with my mother, which meant that I accepted a plurality of faith in the way my sisters didn't really and i always questioned that and it's probably why most of my practice as an artist is questioning everything even the things you shouldn't question so i think that really colonized and affected the way i see everything and and what i do which is to try and break things down to the smallest and most brittle parts to see what is there and try to reconstruct them into narratives so people can understand the meaning or point to what what meaning lies beneath and i left in 1996 came to united kingdom and
1: um did you come with both of your parents at the time yeah and
0: my sisters we all came together my father came a few months before me then then my sisters and my mother came with me and i lived in victoria in my uncle's house though i schooled in holland park (laughs) and i met um jack prudeau who is the producer here when i was 12 years old my first day of school and he's been the most consistent person in my life ever since Um, i lived in dublin for three years in that time came back to london in 2002 and the following year i started working as an artist and i've been self-employed ever since and yeah, have been doing this
1: Okay, so when you were saying Like, let me take it back a little bit When you were saying you went to Holland Park Was that Holland Park School? Yeah Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. cool That I school has okay. birthed quite a few Like, artists and a lot of people Yeah so- even in terms of the location of mm. Holland Park, there's a lot of duality in, yeah. in, in, in economic classes. Completely, yeah. It's like crazy. You could be in Notting Hill one minute and then you're like five minutes down the road and it's like Ladbroke Grove. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And can you remember some of your like initial experiences kind of coming from Nigeria and then over to, because you said Victoria and yeah. then you moved to Holland Park.
0: I was, yo, I was an ignorant kid. Or rather, no, I wasn't ignorant. <laughs> I had grown up in a Nigerian context, and I knew that world well. But coming on to London, coming into England, there was just a lot of things that I didn't know about this country. And, and my first attempt was trying to figure out how to fit in, then slowly learning that I never really would. And I'll always be this weird-ass Nigerian kid. Because the Black British kids always made made me know that I wasn't black British that I was an African the Caribbean kids let me know that I was an African and you know even the British African kids were like I was just fresh off the boat so they didn't really accept me I I hung around mostly with the misfits Um, (laughs) Jack was a bit of a weirdo that I was there was a guy called Louie who was from China he had just come and those were my my boys you know we, we loved art we used to come up with our own art projects and we just geeked out and everything together I quickly became a jack of all trades so I knew the famous kids I knew the basketball I knew the athletes. I knew the guys in the choir because Jack worked a lot with the music people and I was friends through him. And I just used to float around everything. And, then, and because I was a really fast sprinter, a lot of the older boys wanted to race me. So I knew yes. some kids in the old. So I became this sort of guy who never rolled with the crowd. I sort of was outside of it or worked tangentially through it. And it's always been my practice ever since. I moved to Dublin for three years. And then just when I thought I was settling, we had to leave and come back here to London. Then I started working as a poet. As an artist, where my primal instinct is to question everything and try and understand my questioning and then write it into art. So I've always been existing in liminal spaces, questioning, being an outsider, looking in, which means frees me from a lot of responsibility. It means I can do whatever the fuck I want, I yeah. can write whatever you know I want. But it means that I'm constantly floating and I keep on trying to find people who float like me. Mm-hmm. And it's good when we fight each other, but it means we're both floating. Mm-hmm. And, and that you has both know that that its own only- set of
1: problems for a short amount of time yeah. as well, that you might cross paths and we might be in each other's fields. Yeah, move yeah, off. yeah, yeah, And did you come to like an understanding from early that, it was okay to maybe not necessarily fit within any of these pockets or yeah. was it something that was quite a distressing feeling especially like growing up becoming and of course you had some traits which were admirable like you're mm. a sprinter and then there were people who probably appreciated certain parts of your personality yeah. but did you find especially growing up as like a teenager like it was mm. like oh, I, I like a bit of this I like a bit of that but the rest of people don't necessarily vibe with it
0: yeah yeah definitely Dublin was where I hit that the hardest because when my sisters and I started schooling there i was the only black boy in the entire school so there was a lot of ignorance and racism born of ignorance mm-hmm. which i faced and there were a lot of stereotypes they expected me to subscribe to you know mm-hmm. that i've been have this natural affinity to play basketball like i would know like everything about hip-hop and i could communicate it with them, with, with an encycloped Encyclopedic eye to everything but you did um,
1: you knew all about hip-hop and you were a sick basketball i know a little bit about <laughs> hip-hop
0: and i hated it you know i was terrible at basketball <laughs> but i learned to love it because um i've also found a group of misfits who accepted me then accepted that i wasn't those stereotypes you know and you know i still we're still in the same whatsapp group today and i still struggle with them because they are still like rural Irish mentality which means that although they mean the best they still have questionable views on race and humor mm-hmm. and always have to pull them up saying dudes this is not funny and they're like we're just kidding like yes but consider there's a man of color here you yeah. know so those those lines still exist but I remember it Clara's day someone had said something about the clothes that I was wearing in school in Dublin and I walked all the way home and I sat down in my room with a mirror. Staring intently into my face, into the lines and creases, into the contours of my eyes, the little universes that exist if you look intensely. in I was asking myself, who are you going to be? You know, are you going to be who they expect you to be because it's easier? Or are you just going to be that weird freak you've always been since you were four years old running around and drawing everything and I chose to be that person because I realized all I had to lose was my own happiness my own sanity and that was way too precious so yeah that's when I just <laughs> gave myself completely into being an artist I'm like fuck it yeah. just draw <laughs> just write yes. just paint
1: hey bro do you know how powerful <laughs> what you just said was like yeah he's just poetic even when you're not even attempting to be <laughs> quick question like how did you find yourself in Dublin was that just like a choice not of your own? It was like, no, we're going to school here now. You're in Holland Park now. No. Ireland.
0: I've told I have this story, this one-man show called called An Evening with an Immigrant, where I go into intense detail about why. But to be brief, how can you be brief about this? Okay, I'll try and be brief. <laughs> um, our immigration lawyers who were sorting out our paperwork here in the UK were shot down by the home office for selling identities of their clients onto other people. Mm-hmm. So they messed up our entire immigration appeal. And the reason why we left Nigeria is because extremist Muslims were pissed off with my father for marrying a Christian and they made life very difficult for us. So we fled here, came here, tried to live here. Immigration stuff hit the fan. We couldn't go back to Nigeria because they'd burned our house down and it's clear it wasn't safe for us. So... Our lawyers advised us to go to Dublin whilst they sorted out our immigration paperwork, all of which had mysteriously gotten missing in the post. Um, The Royal Mail washed all responsibility off their hands. The lawyers told us they didn't know what had happened, blah, 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 blah. And the Home Office wanted us to go back to Nigeria, but we couldn't because it wasn't safe. So moved to Dublin to try and live there whilst they sorted out everything. And they never sorted out everything. So... After three years, my father began getting threats from Sinn Féin, telling us to get the hell out of Ireland. Otherwise, they'll beat us and rape my sisters and all kind of horrible stuff. So we just left in the middle of the night, came back here and tried to rebuild our life. Finally tracked down our lawyers, then discovered they had been raided and shut down by the Home Office for being dishonest. So we had to rebuild our life. And um, yeah.
1: So how old were you, like, when you fled Dublin? Uh, seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah. Okay, and then you, you guys didn't know necessarily where base would be when you came back. Yeah, to Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We were just floating, trying to find roots.
1: So what happened then? Did you end up for, like locating yourself anywhere in, in London in particular? Oh, uh,
0: we <laughs> lived in Kennington in my in my mother's friend's place for a while mm-hmm. until we found our own place and none head up the road. And then that's roughly when I started writing working as a poet then in 2008 i'd had enough of writing poetry and i wanted to move into theater but i didn't really know how so i ended up writing the beginnings of a play called the 14th tale and um that same year my father had a stroke and um money was really hard we had to leave the house we were living in and we kind of splintered into various places um (laughs) my, my little sister moved in with who eventually became a husband. And yeah, just life got very, very complicated. And that's when I wrote my very first play, 14th Tale and began to work in theater. Yeah,
1: because through that all, at what point were you tapping into these creative outlets? Because you were saying poetry and you became bored of that, but we haven't spoken about, when when did you start picking up a pen and realizing that your words- I started
0: started in making up things when I was four years old. My father just encouraged me, you know, and it, it just carried on when i when i came here throughout boarding school in nigeria i we were middle class like nigerian mm-hmm. family so throughout boarding school i was still drawing and painting everything um came to the uk carried on drawing painting everything Moved to Dublin, carried on drawing and painting, everything. But I was really, I really enjoyed my English homework. So I was good with words. My teachers told me so. When I came back to London and I couldn't afford to uh, to draw or paint, I couldn't afford utensils or paintbrushes and stuff like that. I began writing poetry because it was easier and I could just be visual, but with words instead. And Mm -hmm. slowly that became theatre and then became this other aspect of my work. Can you remember your first poem? Oh boy, it was terrible. Christ. Um, it was a Shakespearean sonnet, and it was about time. And I wrote it because my best friend committed suicide in Dublin. He used to sit beside me most of my classes, and our whole friendship thrived on outdoing each other with language, trying to be the cleverest person in the class and trying to make mm. each other laugh and just trying to argue and being as specific as possible with the argument. Mm. And the point wasn't to win the argument, it was just to dazzle the other person, you know, and that's, that was how our friendship was. But he was going through like a mad depression, which he never told us none of his boys about. And suddenly he took his life when I got back to school. I just, I, I missed that argumentative voice in my life and i wanted to try and safeguard it so i tried to just remember the arguments and try and trap that in poetry or in whatever prose whatever Mm -hmm. and that's when i started writing but i think my first poem was to try and write a sonnet
1: was that, and it was called Time, was it? No, I don't know. I still have it on my iPad or something. Like, that was terrible. Damn, because I was actually hoping you'll be like, so this is how it went. Oh, <laughs> no. Crap. I'm never going to read that out. Now. That... <laughs> Boy, it's embarrassing. I ain't reading that. No, man. It's not so embarrassing, man. It's real. You're, you're still heavily involved in poetry right now? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, I've won a couple of poetry competitions this year. Mm-hmm. I finished writing a poetry book this year. What's that called? It's called Fuck 45. Fuck 45. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's 45 five things I want to say. Fuck you too. And some of them are funny, like um, you know, fuck weak hugs. I right? hate <laughs> weak hugs. You know, fuck limp handshakes. Yeah, no, that's exactly what Bruv, I was about to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah all yeah. nasty. Just
1: like don't touch me if you're not gonna do it properly. Then don't, like. don't do it. Just, you know.
0: And some of them are really poignant, like fuck Boko Haram. You know, mm. like fuck Nigeria, which is about the civil war. Like fuck white savior complex. You know. And you start that out as a dare, really. Where the first one I wrote was called Fuck Trump. And I thought, that's a bit, you know, nail on the head. So I I renamed it Fuck 45 Mm because it's the 45th president. And then I dared myself to actually write 45 fuck poems. I wrote it all on my phone as well, between writing plays and stuff as a distraction for trying to do the big stuff. So I finished it this. Yeah, a few weeks ago, actually.
1: So were these like poems for each topic? So like the yeah. weak handshake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I beg yeah, of yeah. you, can you tell me the, the fuck, the limp handshake one? Can I, yeah, yeah, let me yeah see if please, I can pull please. it up on that my phone. That like... Cause to me, again, it's just one of those, and you know, yeah, everyone's probably got their own way of connecting. But stuff like that, it's like, yeah. stop stroking my my inner like palm. It doesn't need to yeah. happen. Like, come correct to the whole the yeah. whole fingertip play. Like. <laughs> yeah, you um, know, you just have to do it or don't do it, it. man. But this is it. I just, uh, I suppose it's just different standards. But yeah, 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 you can tell a lot about a handshake.
0: Um, but anyway, this is fuck Limb handshake. It's really short. You should do like this. Your forefinger should lift and hold whose hand you grip. You're saying, I got you. Your gut as your thumb completes the lock. You push down, as if leaving your thumbprint, as if gifting its minutiae of hills and valley, your soul's singular geography, your soul's surface code for this occasion of meeting. You wait until you feel a reciprocation, then lift your eyes to find his accompanying gaze. You hold, you squeeze tighter, again you give of your land, give of your fiber, you're saying remember me, as I will you. All through childhood you practiced before a mirror, diligently imagining a truce in civil war, a father reconciling an estranged son, two media moguls merging their worlds. You bring such weight to first handshakes, only to reach out now, and what grasps you back is weak as cooked noodle, limp as warm slug, frail as stale celery, what the actual fuck?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, hey, that's just gonna be my ringtone. I don't even care, man. I'm gonna loop that. I'm gonna loop that, man. Think uh, up. Where can we actually just support uh, if we wanted to read some more of it? It doesn't exist yet. It, it doesn't, doesn't just exist on my
0: phone. I'm sorry. Uh, please, yeah. it
1: needs to come out into this. Literally, I need to be able to grasp it, man. Because like, I feel super privileged that you've even managed to share a piece of that. So, kind of just touching on some of your the the journey of like creating theatre, because when you were saying one of your first plays, it was what was the first play that you said that you created or um
0: it was called the 14th tale
1: 14th tale and was yeah. that based off like a lived experience where was
0: yeah it's a coming of age story really starts is my whole life well one half of my life journey and which begins in nigeria 1984 and ends when my father had a stroke which is that same year that i wrote the 14th tale so it ends in what 2008 or nine and and yeah that, that that's the play. Okay. It was a coming of age that so you can buy the text? that's published by Oberon, who published all my theatre.
1: Nice. Let's look at Oberon, big and they, they got they got a good one, man. They <laughs> yeah. got they got a real one still. Yeah. And then from that play, like how many? Like is this something that you you you're constantly in the process of creating text? And then maybe then you think this might need to be something that the theatre, I'd love to see in theatre. Like, what is your kind of process for, or the way that you kind of categorically create your next kind of piece?
0: Um, I have a big mouth and barbershop has changed my life. I mean, I guess the 14th tale changed my life because suddenly I began to work and exist in theatres and theatric spaces so lots of people went in to help me tell the stories that i wanted to tell but i have an endless amounts of of ideas as you know like i can't stop training them out and i just have a folder called someday projects or just things that I will make someday <laughs> and my creative process is that to write things down and just leave them to incubate until they're ripe and then um sometimes they come to fruition within a couple of years sometimes they take seven or eight you never know it's always in a stage of continuum at any one time i'm working at about 13 14 15 projects and they happen in different scales sometimes i just work on it like you know a couple of days a week sometimes it's like one intense week and nothing for i don't know six months or something like that but they're always something in progress
1: so how did barbershop find its way to the top of the pile like um i started working on barbershop
0: in 2009 I went on a research trip across Africa in 2013. And then I wrote a bunch of drafts until it came to the stage in 2017, and then it's been touring almost nonstop since then. So, so it was
1: an intentional journey. So, because you're to talk about a research trip, mm-hmm. like it's not something you just found yourself in parts of Africa and were like, no, no, uh, no, we you planned knew, that. you knew yeah. this is what you wanted to do.
0: Well, initially, I just. I forgot that barbershops existed because when I left Nigeria, my father would cut my hair and I used to cut his hair. So we just, we just, I just used Could to cut his like, Yeah, Yeah, like, what, zero? Zero. yeah. <laughs> exactly. we, didn't, we didn't pay for it. It was all good. Yeah. But it was a girlfriend I was dating way back in 2009, who was interested in public health. She did a master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and just knew a lot about public health, both mental health and physical health. And she used she works for the, you know, the World Health Organization and Medicine on Frontier. And she gave me this flyer about teaching barbers about counseling way back in 2009. I was like, what do you mean teaches barbers about counseling? And she's like, well, this is the flyer, maybe you should check it out. I you know I was trying to create a visual art project in barbershops anyway. So I went down and just read the flyer. I, f- I forgot how intense conversations the barbershops could get and how deep <laughs> the relationship could be between a barber and their client. So I just wanted to see that happen and see if I can create portraiture based on those interactions. But no one was willing to pay me to write rhymes about haircuts or to draw, <laughs> or to draw <laughs> uh, portraits about cuts. But the idea just stayed with me. And I was speaking with Yule, who um, are my who produced most of my theater work. And I just said, I have this idea to try and write about barbershops because they are naturally dramatic and theatric spaces. People just tell stories all day there. And they found some money. And I spent one week, um, no, one month hanging around barbershops in South London. And because I was a typical Nigerian, I just wanted to be bigger. So I said, I think... We can make something bigger here and i spent one week handing around barbershops in Leeds. then i then we read everything that i discovered and then and, and i said this is great but we can be transnational with this pan-african with this so they gave me a bunch of money not much actually like 5k and for six weeks i just traveled across the continent on my own with my dictaphone yes. me, the, the british council helped me meet some barbers who introduced me to their clients and i just i just go there for one week and just listen and talk and ask if I could record the conversations, and I returned with sixty hours worth of interviews, yeah. which I transcribed into four hours of theatre, which we shortened to an hour and forty-five. So there are whole scenes that no one has ever seen that I still have <laughs> the, on my the computer. The X-rated barbershop. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Telling you, barbershop after hours, man. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but again, that whole process of the dictaphone and then collecting all of that data, like that—that mm. that in itself, like to start sieving through. When did you start, like, realizing like certain pieces needed to be used? I had this
0: blanket rule, which was that if the same topic came up three times then it will make it into the play. So if I went to Lagos and we were talking about something, I went to South Africa and talked about the same thing. And I went to you know Uganda, Kenya, they talked about the same thing. I'm like, okay, bang, it has to be in the play. Cause that's not a coincidence now. Like this is a pattern of interest, of behavior. Men are talking about the same thing. So that was the challenge. How do I get these things that have cropped up all the time into a linear fashion? How do I make it make sense? And sometimes I had to invent a couple of characters people I didn't meet in the bar, but I know that should I have that I voiced those things. Sometimes those things were said in the barbershop verbatim, you cool. know? Sometimes the men I met, these are their names in the play. They told me, yes, don't change my name because all my grandmother to see this. I know that yes. I said this, you know? So something like 50% of the play is recorded word specific the another 50 percent is things that i made wow. up or things that i had conversations i had around around the barbershop
1: yeah. so there's genuine lines in barbershop yeah, chronicles yeah, 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 that yeah. is directly from a barbershop let's say in kenya and south yeah. africa yeah can you remember like one significant moment like maybe just on all of your travels and it might not necessarily have been reflected in the play but there was yeah. maybe one moment in a barbershop where you're like
0: damn um the stuff that Mohammed says in the big scene in London where he talks about the difference between white women and black women, that, that shit, most of it is verbatim. You know, the actors, they try, they freestyle a little bit and improvise some lines, but the core of it is a man I met in Peckham, in a barbershop, who was just talking about this thing that happened where this white woman, because it was a Muslim, didn't drink, so he drank Red Bull and they went home at a shag. You know, all of that stuff, true. Just have this dude that I met, where they talk about the difference between pigeon how um, pidgin english in nigeria has been anglicized corrupted by proper english again that is verbatim the bit about South Africa, the deep critique of mm. Nelson Mandela, um, Simpiwe, who I met, who was an alcoholic. I met him in an airport on my way and he just asked me what I was doing. I told him, yeah, I'm flying to Joburg to research this play. And he met and he just told me his whole life story. Mm. Told me I could record it. So, And
1: you and you've still got some of these raw recordings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been so cool if you could have put that on the tape or like incorporated some of those sounds in the Incurate, actual live theater, yeah. man. Yeah. That's just me with my own little creative <laughs> yeah. spin. Like. In the part two, I'm working on that. You're Working yeah. on it, yeah. <laughs> no, but that's yeah. dope, man. And like, at what point? So now you've collected all of this data. When did you look realize? Wow, we've got something here that is, you know, this is really going to um, capture the hearts of a lot of individuals.
0: It was a really benevolent, kind, wise man called Sebastian Bourne. Everyone calls him Bash. He was the literary uh, manager at the National Theatre, and I transcribed the entire thing. Like four hours worth of text, and most plays at the National, like at the longest, they're three hours. So for me, delivering this massive play was something. And I gave it to him, and I told him to read it. And I was like, I was so arrogant. My God, I was like, Yeah, put that shit on stage, man. Let's make some money, you know. And then Sebastian met me, and I was like, Inwa, this is fascinating. You know, I'm I'm a upper middle class white man. I've never heard any of these stories. It's I'm I'm just. As a fan of anthropology, as a, you know, man who has read, who's invested in African theology and, and, and culture, like, this shit is blowing my mind. However, this play lacks dramatic momentum. I was like, all right, cool. What's dramatic momentum? And he just explained the rising arc of a story complexity just basic things which i knew from reading novels which i knew from writing poetry but haven't figured it out how to attach it to these sprawling conversations which i found and that's when i got a hint of what this could be how to tighten everything and the idea of a global network of barbers and clients who know each other but don't know that they know each other suddenly began to loom. And that's when the engines, the cogs started going and, and the play came. And then all the years of writing poetry just clicked into place. How to use repetition, how to use framing, imagery, all of that stuff, meta, metonym and metaphor, mm-hmm. just the structure and everything just clicked into place. And then we had we had successive amounts of of research and development with various actors from across the black British sphere, men who just loved the script and told me stories about themselves, which I then wrote into the play. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave me so much of themselves. That first act uh, that first set of actors at the national, all of them are worth their weight in gold. Yeah. They were just just awesome.
1: See, that was what I was even gonna say. Like, how were some of the the, the actors picked for these roles? Did, yeah. Was there was there some criteria in your mind where it's like, not only did I need you to fill that text but there's something more that I needed from you.
0: Yeah, because yeah, yeah. We'd, you know, we'd call them, we'd sit down, we'd talk, we'd discuss certain lines, they'd critique one point, they'd agree with another, they'd tell me stuff about their ch- in childhood. One of them called his father on speakerphone and just put it on the table, then asked his father a question about his own childhood. That was how open and safe a space where his father was talking about fathering him mm-hmm. in the room in relation to certain lines of things we'd said. Mm. So it was it was it was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Even like some of one of the themes again when you're talking about the therapy and the therapist of like being someone in a barber chair and like almost allowing yourself to kind of get lost in your problems while getting your hair cut. That mm. whole process. That to me is really significant amongst a lot of peers and friends who I've grown up with, and maybe us not are not identifying that. happening. Mm. So it's like, yo, you're going to just get a trim and then you might just be in there waiting 5-10 minutes and you're literally seeing like hearing all of the conversations, football's on the television, and you're kind of mm. getting lost in that. It's almost like you come to a common room or some form of, like, pool house. And it's only, like, after I saw the play, I realised that that moment was really significant mm. and I probably weren't putting as much value on it at the time because for a lot of people who might not have access to places where they can allow themselves to totally be engulfed yeah. by their surrounding, like, something as simple as a barbershop, and I say simple because it's £10 for a trim, mm. not £50 for an hour with a therapist. Yeah, yeah. That makes all the difference and having a connection with... With a wider group of people who you think share similar experiences, yeah, is yeah. super powerful, man. Yeah, super powerful. So, kind of off the back of that, it got it got previewed and then it went around and then what was the initial reactions to that? Like everyone was like, "This is amazing." Five stars by the Guardian. Yeah,
0: um, <laughs> five stars by almost everyone. To First, be honest, yeah, exactly. it was kind of boy, you
1: tell him. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> no, but I say that because we we were surprised. All of us were taken off guard after that first preview where we had people in the audience responding to the lines at the National Theatre. Yeah. They had never seen anything like that before where the demarcation between play and between the fantasy and reality, between the audience and the actors were so blurred. It, it was it was, it was was crazy. After that first preview, even the play was 10 minutes longer than it was. It just erupted into a deafening Round of applause.
1: Yes. The Standard actors and I right. and
0: the, the director were just looking at ourselves, shocked. Like, what the hell just happened? Like, Like, we knew we had something in the room, but we're completely dumbfounded. Mm. Yeah. And then... Ever since then, it was just a re a re-realization and understanding of what we have done, how we worked, why it worked, and how to make it better. Uh-huh. And each time is a confirmation of that when we take it to like when we're in America and New Zealand and Australia in almost exclusively white spaces, and there are still people just loving it and, and has
1: just, has it gone on tour to other so you've taken it australia new zealand yeah so this is things that in, in big theaters as well yeah yeah,
0: yeah. sometimes we're playing in three thousand seater venues which is not mental
1: which is you not know? so
0: so yeah it's been and it's, been,
1: it's, it's similar reactions internationally
0: yeah i mean there were some which were slightly different than others because when you play to a london audience or to those in a cosmopolitan city it's different because those people in the audience are watching their uncles or their fathers on stage. Whereas for audiences who are not black, who are not people of color, they are at first watching black men on stage rather than their uncles or their brothers. And they're black <laughs> men. They are seen through the filter of all those negative news headlines or whatever. Yes. Until finally halfway through the play or something like they click into, oh, whoa, these are just... People and they have the same concerns than I do. They just look different to me, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a slower rise to warmth. Mm. It rise to true empathy and simply through the characters but we get there eventually yeah whereas with London audience it's just bang first scene you're there
1: Your, the first jokes is coming yeah. like him lying down on the, on yeah. the mattress yeah yeah. yeah yeah I remember it well man and yeah. I remember even at the national like majority I, I saw a matinee and you've got to remember who who goes to the theatre think about yeah. the type of person that's at the theatre at 1.30 in the afternoon the type of individual who has freedom and probably financial yeah. excess to go to the theatre at the national at one thirty. and I remember being there and it was just yeah man seeing so many people like with hard hitting topics especially when I'm talking about Nelson Mandela and there were there were moments where I I looked around and just seeing them being engulfed by that like I was just looking around and I was just like damn like these are legitimately enjoying this like and they're getting like uh, even if it was a slice of a perspective into someone's existence like Mm. what you're experiencing for an hour is what some people this is their everyday life and the fact that now you can probably walk out of here and just say okay I I kind of get it a bit or you might have an experience or you might have an encounter later on in life and you're like I get it a little bit more because mm. I've seen that Yeah. so that kind of long term effect you never really know what you're doing and you've created that but the ripple that that's going to have in society mm. it's mental man like it's really
0: it was really telling and there's some jokes which are so layered that when people get it, I geek out. Mm. There's some jokes, which are like three layers deep. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you can know? you
1: remember, actually don't even say it to yeah, me. I will be, nice, yeah. right. <laughs> be looking <laughs> for it. But
0: it's only, it's only some, I think only one person other than the creative team who really understood that the three founding fathers of the play are called Malachi, El Nathan and Emmanuel. And they represent the three main tribes in Nigeria. Uh-huh. Malachi is, he's Yoruba. Emmanuel is Ibo and El is Hausa, mm-hmm. you know. So what I was, I don't know, man. I I love Nigeria as a country. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love is that we still exist. We should have splintered. We had a whole civil war, you know, mm-hmm. how many years after independence? But there's something which binds us together, even when we are at are at most cantankerous, mm-hmm. at most explosive, and um and I wanted to keep that as the grounds on which the entire story was built. So he's only, I think it was only one member of the audience who got that, who was like, are you telling me this was your plan? I was like, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. I was like, okay, okay, well okay, done, okay, man, okay. Yeah. well done,
1: you, <laughs> done. So what what does it look like? Because obviously after creating a piece like that, now I actually saw the Half God of Rainfall and mm-hmm. the Kiln Theatre in Kilburn yeah. as well. But when you create a piece like Barbershop, are you ever concerned that, your other theater or the pieces that you're writing do you ever hold it to the same sort of standard as barbershop or is it obviously all of the plays are going to be you think are great but are you a bit concerned about releasing it into the world for someone else to maybe consider it as a similar standard or it doesn't matter you just create because you create um i
0: i think i just create because i create trying to judge yourself on your past successes means that you're living in the past. You know, and you can't really do that because a set of circumstances which happened to create barbershop and to make it the success it's been some of them. Were beyond my control. Many of them were. I think one of the reasons why Barbershop banged so much in the year it came out is because we spent <laughs> a whole year of seeing negative portrayal of black men. That year was mad. Do you remember every other day you opened Twitter, there was a black man being shot by policemen. Mm-hmm. You know that summer was wild. So having so many black deaths on our phone meant that when you saw so much black life at the National Theatre, it was a revelation. It was like fuck, we live. <laughs> and we continue to live and breathe you know i think that's why it bangs so much so those particular circumstances led to barbershop thriving and you just have to take each project like that you mm-hmm. know you can't judge it can't hold it to another project's pedestal mm-hmm. it just has to exist in its own universe
1: right now is there anything that you're working on that you want us to maybe cone in on is there anything that's potentially like going to come up in the next few months because you're saying you're writing another play in yeah, between, right um
0: three sisters is i'm, I'm writing that at the moment which mm-hmm. is you can buy tickets Gets it out already, it's at the National Theatre. Mm-hmm. And um there's one event on the 5th of January. I'm going to list it on my website, which is where I'm going to read all the fuck poems in a theatre in Soho. Please. Um, on the 5th. I think <laughs> yeah. it's on a Sunday or something like that. Actually, let me just check that out. Be, be, yeah, be, be, accurate uh, be accurate in be terms accurate. of, yeah. yeah,
1: you know, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out and yeah, the day. But, um,
0: yeah. Let me see. Uh, 5th of September at the Boulevard Theatre at 4
1: p.m. Sunday afternoon. Okay, you um, heard it. So 4 p.m. Sunday afternoon, the 5th of...
0: Fifth of oh, January, sorry. Fifth okay, of, of January. Boulevard Theatre, Soho. I'm gonna read all the fuck points.
1: Yes. And they can get tickets on your website, right? Or yeah. link you to where they're actually yeah. Yeah, the yeah. payment if you places. Just type it in, you can buy it. Yeah. Cool. And um, as we're kinda of drawing to a close, what did Barbershop Chronicles or you creating plays? What has it taught you about yourself?
0: I'm still I'm still processing, I'm still learning. What it's taught me is as much as possible to honor the process of collaboration which is necessary to theater. I have my own set of skills. The director has a whole set of skills. The set designer does, the lighting designer, the sound designer. And I have to try as much as possible to trust them. I say try because I'm still human. I'm still I'm still a lone man. I still write poetry and and i still have this lone voice in my head which makes me think sometimes that i can do everything even though i know i can't Mm. so i need to let go of that process to really create a conducive space for collaboration and the space to sculpt prime art and and you really need that so that is is one thing that barbershop taught me because all of the creative team did things i could not have conceived of myself so so that's it um another thing is just to be patient man we live in in a fractal world where Twitter creates the illusion of of time and the speed of time and the importance of creating things in the now that isn't healthy for the human mind Mm -hmm. and it is counterintuitive to the African spirit um and I say that because we're 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 late at everything <laughs> because we have to respond to time, like the play says. And there's this there's this belief among Afrofuturists that Africans are almost by design futurist we live in the future we live in hope because we come from a place of lack and suffering but the only reason we're able to wake up in the morning is because we can always envision a brighter future we live in the present but our minds are in the future we are afro futurists Mm -hmm. you know and think that really underlines a lot of my work which is why i'm able to work on a project for 10 years in advance because i think we're going to get there in the end (laughs) so just trust in that barbershop taught me that just patience longevity
1: that is beautiful, man. That mm. is beautiful. And kind of just off the back of that, what's like a really memorable lesson that your parents have taught you that's still necessarily ingrained or it's ingrained in what you do?
0: Um, my parents, oh, wow. That's that's a really big question. There's so much to draw from. From um, my mo- My mother's a, like a really staunch Christian. And she's she always champions that I believe in God or that I believe that everything would be okay. I get that from her. My father is probably persistence and perseverance. He's always been that. And the nature and the importance of risk sometimes. Sometimes you get things and um, sometimes you don't. And my father, I don't really keep grudges. If you hurt me, um, I give you space to make amends almost instantly. And if you don't, then I'll walk away. But I don't walk away and keep the malice. I'm just like, okay. I'm just going to step back. Mm-hmm. My father has taught me in the importance of not keeping grudges. If mm-hmm. things don't go right or they go, don't go well for you, just accept it. I move on i'm working in the creative industries where so much falls between the crack where so many things don't happen for so many reasons if if, if i went around keeping grudges for things like that i probably <laughs> you, wouldn't work you're right yeah I'm you know not right nothing and i hate everyone any yeah of this. <laughs> yeah so you just have to keep it uh, keep it moving really oh yeah.
1: man that's, that's that's dope and kind of the final question that in my mind is what is it that what's advice you would have given to a younger in your like a 16 year old version of yourself
0: i've been asked this question quite a few times. And my answer has always seemed on the surface arrogant, which is my, my response is always nothing because my 16 year old was dope. But he kind of was, I was an immigrant. I had nothing to lose. I had no country that I belonged to. Everything was impermanent. So I did everything that I could. And that openness, that attempt to always live in the present, whilst looking to the future, to always create and let go if it didn't work out was probably why I worked so much, I met so many people and why I'm still an artist today. It really created safe ground to create and be willing to create all the time. So if anything, I want that sixteen year old to teach me to be freer right now because Mm -hmm. I'm getting older and slightly slower and a little bit more conservative. Mm -hmm. So no, I got nothing to teach sixteen year old in man. You think there's a lot that you could be learning from sixteen year old? Yeah. (laughs) The kids will be all right. They always are. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Mad
1: in you up, first and foremost, ma'am, thank you for coming on today. And yeah. not only that, but sharing a piece of yourself because you touched upon some real elements of who you are and I feel the fact that you've even managed to share that here. Mm-hmm. Like But kudos you. to
0: you. You are a naturally gifted interviewer. Like it's gotten to the point where I don't like doing interviews anymore. Like you can ask <laughs> the publicist for barbershop, I'm like, sorry, I just don't want got, to do like, one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. You've made this very fluid. So thank you no, so man, much.
1: like Again, back to the thank yous. Can we just thank, yeah. you? <laughs> thank you thank you man thank you thank you thank you <laughs> but honestly man where can people find your work or find just give them a handle for people to look at some of the stuff yeah. or find out some of the interesting stuff um, you're going to be up to
0: yeah just on twitter and on instagram on my website it's just at inua ellams i-n-u-a-e-l-l-a-m-s that's me mad
1: all the love cool. man and guys peace out